0: Amen. We've been singing about amazing grace and unfailing love this morning. So remember that, because everything else we're going to talk about this morning only makes sense if we remember his amazing grace and his unfailing love. Now can you believe it? This is our last week of Leviticus. Holy smokes, we made it all the way through. Uh, if the Lord tarries for the next half hour or so, then we will make it all the way through. And we're actually going to summarize chapter 27 today and dig into chapter 26. But I don't know about you, I kind of feel like, a little bit like when I go to a movie. When I go to a really good movie and I sit there for two hours and it's just, it's epic, it's emotional, whatever, I'm, I'm taking it all in. And I'm, I'm that guy at the end of the movie that I'm going to sit there through the whole credits. Partly because like... I feel like I paid for this part too, so I should enjoy it, (laughs) but mostly because I just need a minute to like soak it in, to think about what I just saw, to think about how it affected me. Maybe it had a twist ending, what, you know, what I think just happened. And usually there's somebody with me who is like, can we go yet? (laughs) Hey, hey, what'd you think about the movie? What did I think? I'm not ready to answer that yet. Just just give me a minute. I, I need to absorb this. Well, maybe you're like me, and you love to just sit and reflect and absorb that a little bit. Maybe you're the person with me who is like, what are we waiting for? The Movie's over, let's leave. Whichever one, I want us to have a minute this morning, as we come to the end of Leviticus, to just absorb a little bit, to just reflect a little bit on the journey that we've been on through this book of the law. And you can think back about a lot of the things that we've studied, and maybe there's one or two or three that just really have jumped out for you as like the thing you never knew before, the thing you learned about God, the thing you understood better, whatever that is. You know, we've seen things about God's holiness, about how high and holy he is, how dangerous it is when we try to lower his standard of holiness. But how he calls us to be holy as he is holy, how he knows that. We can't always keep that standard. And so he set up these sacrifices, this way for the people to have forgiveness from him, a way for commonplace to enter sacred space. That's been a theme that's been going through the whole book. And in the last few weeks, as we've explored God's celebrations, his holy days, his party days, the times that he has set aside on his calendar to make sure that we have rest and remembrance and repentance, you know, maybe it's some of these, maybe it's other things, But whatever it is, I want you to just remember that for a second, absorb that a little bit, and keep that in mind now as we go through just the very end of this book. So to summarize chapter 27 quickly, and the reason we'll summarize this, you can read it for yourself, and I encourage you to do that, but it basically gives a number of stipulations that are sort of commentary on some of the earlier things God said. And so it's talking really about the ways that we give to the Lord's house, and and it talks there about dedicating a child to God, dedicating animals to God, dedicating houses and land to God, and then what happens if you change your mind and you decide you want that thing back. And in each case, it says you have to pay 120% of the value, an extra fifth, to redeem something back uh, that had been given for God. It also outlines a couple things that, hey, whether you want it back or not, that's God's now. And then there's this really interesting story right at the end that talks about our tithe, the tenth that is given. Now, for a people whose wealth was mostly in animals, this meant as your sheep walk past, you count them off. One, two, three, and every tenth one belongs to God. And so he knows us too well. He warns us in that story because he knows that as I'm counting my sheep, oh man, number ten is like my best one. He switched those two. God says, now I get both of them. (laughs) Doesn't he know our hearts all too well? That even in a moment where we're kind of, we're trying to be generous, we're trying to do our tithe, we're trying to, we still might try to make the switch. That there are always things in our hearts that are worrying against what God actually has for us. And really that's why we come back then to chapter 26 to dig in. Because God knows that now, by the end of this book of Leviticus, He has given them law after law. He's given them sacrifice after sacrifice. He's given them so many commands on the ways to do these things and how to do them well so that things will go well. But he knows that they're not going to keep it. And so chapter 26 really kind of puts a cap on the whole book. And and it starts this way. In verse 1 it says, You shall not make idols for yourselves. Neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves. Nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. And so in a sense, those two verses are like the capstone, the summary of everything else. That everything that he's told them about the way they worship him is that they worship only him. Because he alone is holy, he alone is God, and everything is built on this. And so he asked them to observe the Sabbaths, those celebrations that we've been studying as a way of honoring him, spending time with him, and worshiping him. But again, he knows we struggle with this, don't we? And so as we move forward, I want you to remember his amazing grace, his unfailing love, and something unique that we're going to see here. Because in the rest of the chapter, God is going to lay out the blessings that go well for us, that would go well for his people when they followed his commands, and the consequences, the the curses of what would happen if they didn't. But in the midst of that, he has these promises for us of his presence and his faithfulness. And we can understand God's presence and faithfulness through a few big ifs of the Old Covenant. Now we say it's the Old Covenant... Because we know on this side of the cross, through Jesus Christ, we have a new covenant, a better covenant. But this is a unique moment in time where as God is giving this covenant, there are a few big ifs that outline how we see his presence and his faithfulness all the way through. So to make sense of that, we're going to have to bring back a couple of our Bible study principles that we've been learning in this series. One of those is that we use the Bible to interpret the Bible. So as we try to make sense of this page... We're going to reference a bunch of these other pages because they help. They help make sense, especially for something like this, where what God tells them was then fulfilled throughout their history. Not only that, the second one you see there, before we understand what the text means to us, we must first understand what it meant to its original audience in its original context. And so there are principles that we'll draw out of this, but this is a very specific moment in history. And a lot of the things that God is going to be specific about in this passage were specifically fulfilled in the history of Israel. As you flip through the Bible, you see these things happen. And so we want to remember that, first of all, we're reading about a moment in time where God was speaking to this group of people. But as we do that, we begin to understand more of who God is. We begin to understand the principles of how his presence and his faithfulness are weaved through everything that he does, and that's for us. That's for us, too. So let's jump right in, because in verse 3, we get the first of the big ifs. It's essentially, if you obey. Having all of these chapters in front of you, if you do what I've commanded. So let's look at what he says. If you walk in my statutes, and keep my commandments, and perform them, Then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. You see, the first round of promises that God gives are about the harvest. He says, I'll give you rain in its season. Not too much. Not too little, just enough for your crops to grow. And not only that, but that round of crops will last until the vineyard's ready. And what you harvest from the vineyard, that'll last until the next season is ready so that they always have provision. They never have frenzy, they never have panic, they never have want. They'll eat to the full. They'll be satisfied that God is going to take care of them, provide for them, and give them safety. In fact, he continues to describe how that safety comes in verse 6. He says, "'I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred. That's pretty good odds. "'And a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight.'" Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. You see, he's promising them not only provision, not only safety, but strength and peace. If you've ever spent time in Psalm 18, this sounds just like it. Where David says, with God's help, I can advance against a troop. Right, the idea here is that one person, just five people, Just a few men and women who trust God, who are faithful to him, one person with God on their side outnumbers an army without him. That's the promise. That's the blessing that God is holding up before his people. This is his plan. This is his desire. Not only that, it continues in verse 9. He just keeps going. God says, For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. You see, there's the promise of his faithfulness. He says, I will confirm my covenant. The covenant is already a promise, and now he's saying, And I'll stick to it. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God. And you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. And so we see there not only the promise of his faithfulness, but the promise of his presence. He says, I'll I'll put my tabernacle among you. Now remember, at this specific moment in time, as we've studied through this book, that literally meant the tabernacle a big tent where they would offer their sacrifices where they would worship God where the priests would serve but not only that i love that in verse 12 how he says i will walk among you right the god of the universe saying i'm just going to be with you we'll walk around together this this is going to be great the tabernacle is going to be here and i will just be in your presence that just the, the physicality of that picture and you think about that here's what's important to realize This is what God hopes for. This is what God desires. The thing that God loves more than anything else is just to be with you. Just to be with his sons, his daughters, for us to be in his presence, for us to enjoy him. You think about that. You remember there's a place in the New Testament where it says, uh, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with them. How many have we got in this room right now? I mean, think about that. The God of the universe is saying, oh, you guys are getting together at Horizon on Sunday morning? I'm there. I love that. That's God with us. And every time that, that you get together with one other person, you say, hey, let's pray. You get together with a couple people, you grab lunch, and you say... What's God doing in your life? Every time that, that you meet together with your men's study or, or your women's group and you open up His Word and you, and you seek God's will for your life, God says, I love this. I'm here for this. We're going to walk around together. We're going to spend time together. This is the best. You know, a lot of times when we sing in these services together, it, it does a good reset for my heart, but that's just not for my heart. Like, God's heart delights in that. He delights in his people. Follower of Jesus, sitting here this morning, he delights in you. Because he's your father. You know, I think a little bit about, you know, when I travel for work, and then when I come home, it's like even if I'm gone for a day, you just feel like because you're far, you miss your kids so much more. And all the way home, all I can think is, man, when I get home, like, me and Simeon are playing with the Batman action figure, and and me and Obed, we are doing our Legos, and I'm going to have Axel read a book to me, and me and Belle are going to play soccer. This is just going to be awesome to be with them again. That's how God feels about us. In fact, when you look at these verses, 3 to 13, as he describes his blessing, really, this could be the end of the chapter. We We could close it, and we could all go home. Practically speaking, this should be all we need. Practically speaking, this is all that God wants for us. It's just to live in obedience, to follow his will, and to enjoy his blessing. But practically speaking, none of us do that all the time. None of us have perfect obedience. None of us are always seeking his will. He knows that there are times where our will battles against his. And so we're actually about a third of the way through this chapter, and most of the last two thirds has a shift from the joy of the blessing to the pain of the consequences. That's the second big if. The first one was if we obey, he says his people would experience this blessing. The second is if not. This is what it says in verse 14. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes or if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenants, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of the heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee even when no one pursues you. How's that? That was a shift, huh? I mean, you hear hear what God is saying. If you do not obey and observe all these commandments, you see, he knows us too well. We could stay at the end of verse 13 and just celebrate, but he knows there are times that we are going to need course correction. And so he's going to do that. And what happens here is that there are actually five different layers now of these consequences. With the blessing, God just said, hey, if we get this right, it is going to go well for you, you're going to love this, and and we're just going to have blessing all the time. Now on the flip side, there are five different layers, and I want you to watch for the patterns that come out of this, because each of them is going to start with one of these if-nots. And, and everything that follows here is not for just a single breach of the law. It's not, it's not one mistake. But it's this idea that his people would actually turn against him. That they would have contempt for the law. That they would rebel against him in breach of the covenant. Not only as individuals, but as a nation. And so God begins to outline what's going to happen if they do. And, and some of this is just the natural consequences, right? Like... God has given them laws throughout Leviticus called the cleanliness laws to make sure that they avoid disease. Well, if they turn their backs on those commandments, if they turn their backs on cleanliness, then disease comes in. And so in this first round, in this first round when he says there will be disease, well, naturally, you gave up on the cleanliness laws. And so sometimes it's just the natural consequences of it. Look at round two in verse 18. After all this everything he described in the first one, after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Keep that phrase in mind. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. You see, what's happening here is that as their attitude towards god gets progressively worse the punishment gets progressively worse progressively more painful and at each moment the consequence that god is describing you notice this it's in direct opposition to the blessing right if the blessing was that they would sow and they would reap and they would have plenty now he's saying there will be no rain it will not yield you will not have plenty you know one example of this is you remember in the book of judges there 's a place where Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. And wheat does not belong in a wine press, but he 's trying to hide it from the enemy who is going to come and eat it, just as God said in round one and because the enemy keeps coming and eating it, then the people do not have enough, as he describes in round two. Watch what he says in the third layer verse twenty one then If you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. I will send the wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children. So before he removed the wild beasts, now they come back in. Rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, and your highways shall be desolate. For a little perspective on this, God is essentially saying, when you, as a people, have turned your backs on me, then he says, I will break the pride of your nation. He's, he's got to break the pride of this nation that's so confident in its wealth, so confident in its strength, so confident in its production, that people begin to say, we haven't really done the commandments for a long time, and things seem fine. Maybe God didn't mean it. Maybe God wasn't serious. Maybe we don't need God. Now now that sounds incredibly prideful, but that's exactly what they were saying in the books of Jeremiah, in the books of Ezekiel. In fact, there are 22 phrases that show up only here in Leviticus and again in Ezekiel. Because Ezekiel knew he was living in the time when this was being fulfilled. When they had so turned their backs on God that these things were actually happening. They were no longer curses from long ago. They were the day today, And so he was using the language of Leviticus to try to point to the people, remember God said this? This is it. It's happening. He was serious. Now look at round four. The fourth layer of consequence. Verse 23 says... And if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. He goes on to describe how he will bring the sword against them, how they'll be delivered into the hand of the enemy, how they will eat and not be satisfied. Now, take a moment, look at the phrase in verse 23. This tells you everything about God's heart. If by these things you are not reformed. You see, this is not just God flying off the handle. This is not just God saying, you know what, I give up on you. At each moment, we realize there's this pattern that that if you do not obey, there's a little bit of consequence. Then he says to his people, and if after this you still disobey, we're going to go a little bit deeper. And if after this you still walk contrary to me, it's going to get a little bit harder. And if by all of these things you're not coming back to me, to the blessing that's waiting, then it's going to get even deeper. And the move from round four to round five is the most painful of all because not only are they short on food, but the famine actually turns to cannibalism. And at each moment, God's people are going through this, and instead of turning back to him, they entrench in their disobedience. Look at this, verse 27. After all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. What? Pause. He's going to go on to describe how he'll lay the cities to waste, their high places that they've made to idols will be torn down, but think about what he just said. If you continue to disobey, you will be so hungry that you will turn to eating your children. No, no, that's not an empty threat. That actually happens in 2 Kings chapter 6. There's a story there where two women have decided they're so hungry, today we'll eat my baby, tomorrow we'll eat your baby. And then one of them comes to the king to complain about how horrible this is. Only her problem is not that we're eating babies. Her, her problem is that we agreed to eat both of them, we ate mine, and she hid hers, and I'm still hungry. What? I don't know about you. It's easy to pick on Israel here. It is really hard for me to picture a moment in my life where my choices are obey God or eat my kids. <laughs> Who chooses this? <laughs> you see, even as we read into round five, it's the longest one, it goes the furthest down, it is the most painful, it is the most terrible. You've got to realize this is a long way down, right? This is not God waking up one morning and saying, you know, I'm kind of grumpy today. Let's go to round five, right? It's God saying, I'm trying to give you chances. I'm trying to bring you back. Some of this is the natural consequence of your own mistakes. You see, he told them, give the land Sabbaths. Give it rest. Observe them. When they don't, then the land doesn't get rest because it doesn't rest. All the nutrients are pulled out of the land because the nutrients are pulled out of the land. The crops don't grow because the crops don't grow. And there's nothing to eat. It's a natural side effect of their disobedience. As it goes on in verse 32, he describes exactly that, how he would take them out of the land so that it could enjoy their Sabbaths. Now, now think about this. If we're in a specific moment in time, this is still Leviticus. The people are not even in the land yet. And so we realize God is actually starting to talk about the future. That after they've gone into the land, and then these things start to happen, he will take them back out so the land can have its rest. It continues in verse 36, how he describes, even for those who are left, they have seen so much terror, so much destruction, so much desolation, that they will run from their own shadows. Pause again. You notice in rounds two, three, four, and five, it has that phrase, seven times more. There's a picture there of the fullness of God's judgment, the fullness of the punishment, that the number seven is meant to be a a picture of that. But as I hear that, seven times more according to your sins. Man. But like, what about Psalm 103? You know, Psalm 103, it says he does not treat us as our sins deserve or punish us according to our iniquities. I think I like that one better, <laughs> right? But, but what do we do with that? I mean, if God is love and if Jesus saves and if... Psalm 103 is in the Bible, but Leviticus 26 is in the Bible. Do we just, do we just throw this one away? H- h- what's the difference? Well, I'll tell you the difference, but let me tell you a story first. Because if you're a parent, you probably understand this. I know eight years ago when I first became a dad, I began to understand God as a father so much better than I ever did before. Because it goes something like this. Let's take uh, homeschool in our house, for example. On a given weekday, when I get up and I'm heading out to work, I know that the remainder of the day is is pretty much a homeschool day, and so I gather the kids around, get down on one knee, look me in the eye, please. All of you, thank you. Listen, guys, if you obey mom for homeschool today, if you just do what she says, do your sheets, get it done quickly, it's going to go awesome. You're going to find out how much faster it goes, how much easier it is, and then We'll have so much extra time left to play, to do science projects, maybe even a video game, all right? It's going to be awesome. But if you don't obey, there's some natural consequences. If you don't just do what mom asks you to, then it's going to take a lot longer and you won't have time for any of that fun stuff. But there's a little bit more than that too. If you disobey, you're going to get a timeout. You might have something taken away. You see, some of the consequences are natural, some of them are God given because He's a father. Some of you know that it's it's not as simple always as just trying to get through a homeschool day. Some of us know the pain of a rebellious child. Some of us know the consequences that come from poor decisions in life that hurt us and how we are as parents are willing to give even greater consequences even earlier on if it has any chance to divert them, to turn them back to what God has called us to. You see, when we think about how we discipline children, do we do it because we hate them? Of course not. Do we do it because we're just, we're just sick of them? I hope not. <laughs> we do it because we love them. God does this because he loves us. If we are not his sons and his daughters, then he doesn't bother. If we didn't love our kids, then we don't bother. But we know, for every conversation we ha- may have, for whatever you have faced in your families, for whatever I may face in years to come. I know that there's only so much I can do. And then they make their own choices. But God is willing to give them these consequences so that at every moment they might have an opportunity to repent, to confess, to come back. And see, that's the difference. If you look at verse 40, this is what God says. And when I read chapters like this, before I get to verse 40, we can own this. I I am crestfallen. (laughs) I'm, this is painful. Is this really, I mean, God? And then you realize what he's trying to do. And then verse 40 is like a breath of fresh air. The final if. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me and that they also have walked contrary to me and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt then I will remember my covenant I will remember my covenant God's faithfulness through everything else that has gone on, through every time they have turned their backs, through every time they have entrenched and they have gone deeper, God says, I am still faithful. And so he called his people to confess. Now for all the specifics in this passage, this is a principle for us too. That there are times in life where we go through hardships because the world is a hard place. There are times in life Where it may be that we're experiencing the consequences of being out of line with God's will. And he allows that to draw us back. And so he says, confess. You know, that that really just means to agree with God about what we've done wrong. In fact, it says here in verse 43, they will accept their guilt. This idea that they're no longer going to say, God, it's not fair. God, this is too much. God, this is too painful. God, why are you doing this to us? But that they'll say, you know what? You're right. We abandoned you. We turned from you. We rebelled against you. More than just, sorry, 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 sorry. Please don't let the wild beasts in. But saying, God, line my heart with yours. Forgive me. I love that picture because of the reality that God is always faithful, always right there, and ready to go right back to blessing. In the remainder of that, in verse 44, he says, For all that, for all of that, people who have defied him to the point that they are cast out of their own land, they are eating their own children, that everything is going wrong, yet for all of that, When they're in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. For I am the Lord their God, and for their sake I will remember the covenant of their ancestors. (laughs) Again, think about what he's saying. He's talking to these people standing in front of Moses right now and talking about the people who've been taken out of the land. That's the future, right? Saying, in the future, when they confess what their ancestors have done. But not only their ancestors, not just blaming those who've gone before and saying, well, it's their fault and they did it and they did this to me, but what they've done and what we've done, that we give that to God. Then in verse 46, he closes by saying, these are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. Now this becomes the pattern all the way through the Bible. You realize that this is not just one weird chapter that we try to get past and move on, but that this is what God is doing throughout all of Scripture, through all of the law and the prophets. Take Jeremiah 18, for example. God says that if the nation against whom I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring on it. This is what drives Jonah crazy right? He goes to Nineveh with a message of vengeance and judgment. They repent. They turn away from their evil, and God says, okay, and then I relent. And Jonah's like, what? How can you forgive them? Jonah, let us not forget that he forgave you. How often do we do this? We say, I want it, I need it, the forgiveness, but we don't want to forgive others. All right, God says he is willing to forgive and we can forgive when that flows through us. Not only for a nation, but Isaiah 55 demonstrates this for an individual. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and He will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. It happens in Micah. It happens in Ezekiel. It happens in the New Testament. You know, before we leave Leviticus, we got to do the Jesus principle one more time. We can't leave this without remembering that Jesus fulfills all of the law and the prophets. Everything that we've studied in this entire series points to Christ. Here's how. We're going to roll through this, so stay with me. John 1.14, Jesus is the promise of God's presence. Right? It says there, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word is the word tabernacled. No longer a tent somewhere, but God in the flesh. Remember this. Jesus is God. He is revealing God, the Father, his heart to us, that he comes here and literally walks around with his people. How amazing is that? And that when he left, he gave us his spirit to literally walk around with us as he promised in his blessing in Leviticus 26, God's presence. Not only that, Jesus is the promise of God's faithfulness. Isaiah 53, listen to this now. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement? For our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Prophesied in Isaiah, quoted again by Peter. Listen to what that's saying. Jesus knows what is in Leviticus 26. When Jesus went to the cross, he was willing to take all of the wrath of Leviticus 26 for you, for you, and for me, all seven times. Peter knew about this, and Peter's thinking, if that's the fullness of judgment, what's the fullness of forgiveness? And he asked Jesus one day, how, sh- how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Jesus is going to love this, the way I answer, up to seven times, Jesus, because I'll do it. <laughs> I love how Jesus answers him. I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. The fullness of forgiveness is not just the seven times to counteract the wrath. It's 70 times seven. That the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ is abundant. And that is for you. That's why, in the New Testament, the writers can say this, for Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Romans 10, that Jesus has fulfilled all of the law. The law was kept perfectly by him, and all of its penalties, everything that was set up there because of what we do against God, was poured out on Christ. That's why now, our righteousness is not by the law. It's by faith in Jesus. See, for me, I think that is the thing more than anything else that has stuck with me through this series. You know, people were waiting for a Messiah because they thought that meant he would kick Rome out and then they could relax again and get back to doing sacrifices. This is a thing that I think I've, I've embraced more than anything else in this series. The gospel was so much better than they even imagined because he was fulfilling every sacrifice. He was taking every punishment that the scripture had confined all of us under sin, but the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You see, the gospel of Jesus is the promise of God's presence and faithfulness in the new covenant. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I'd like to pray with you that way right now. And even as we think about that, we wonder, how could it be just for God to forgive what we've done? And the answer is simple. It's because Jesus paid it all. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just want to come before you in a quiet moment now. Lord, you know our hearts. You know our activities. You know our day-to-day. You know if we're at round one or round three, or if we are just enjoying the blessing. But God, I pray that this might even be a moment for us as individuals and for us as a community, Lord, even for our nation, to say you're right about what we've done wrong. God, I confess my sins before you. We confess our sins as a people and just ask that you would reform us, that you would bring us back to your blessing through Jesus Christ our Savior, Jesus Christ, who paid it all. Amen. That is the good news. If you are a brother or a sister in Christ here this morning, would you just rejoice in that and hear, He loves you, He forgives you. Would you tell somebody else about that this week too? Tell somebody you care about how good God is. And come back next week. Thank you for finishing Leviticus with us. Next week, we're starting another L book. Not Lamentations. Relax. We're jumping into the Gospel of Luke to find out how this Dr. Luke goes digging for the facts about the Jesus who paid it all. Hope to see you next week. Thank you for coming.